Welcome to Conversations on Cub Creek, a podcast situated in the hollows along Cub Creek, west of Nashville, Tennessee. Good conversation with smart, passionate, interesting people, and great music, some good beer, and some good food. Thanks for spending your time with us here on the creek. Enjoy. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Uruguayan-born jazz pianist Enrique De Boni and Cuban-American bassist Ron De La Vega. As always, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one first, if you haven't already. Otherwise, we'll begin where I pulled the rug out from under you, asking Ron to tell us the story of teaching Eddie Van Halen to play the cello. Let's get started. Ron, I've been waiting all night to say this line, you taught Eddie Van Halen to play the cello. How does that happen? Well, obviously not very well, because if you ever heard him play cello, <laughs> nobody has. It's not always the teacher's <laughs> fault, right? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> even when it's Eddie Van Halen. Well, I'll be honest with you. We did less learning cello than we uh, did drinking. Okay. So how did you even get to the point where he says, come to my house, teach well, me the cello? Um we had a mutual friend, and he, like I said, at the apartment where I was a co- I co-wrote with this guy for several years. I, I don't want to get into it. It was not a, a beautiful end to a situation. I got, you know, basically everything was taken from me with everything I put into it. Uh, I haven't written since then, really, hate to say. But um, it, 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 he was friends. You know, they were friends, and, and Edward would come by when we were working on stuff and would actually lend some ideas and might play a thing on our little four-track thing we were doing at the time, just kind of coming up with these things. Wow. He, he would put something in. Um, so I, I met him, you know, briefly. I, mean, I wouldn't say I could call him up and say, hey, let's go, you know, whatever. But I remember we were, we were going to his house one night, and he was, you know, he said, bring your cello. I think everyone's to, you know, so I brought my cello with me. And by the way, folks, is it the cello we're, we're looking that's, at yeah, here? That's the one. And yeah. remind people what kind of cello we're talking about. We're not talking about Suzuki plywood cello. No, it, to it's take not, to Eddie Van Halen's house. Well, I I could have. I'm not sure he would have minded. Uh, but the risk of taking but, this cello. Yeah, no, I took it. You know, this is the cello. This cello I bought when I was age appropriate at that one year of university that they asked me to leave. Um, I, I bought it when I was a student there. Um, uh, a, a place called uh, Bearden's Violin Shop in, in uh, St. Louis, Missouri. They would cater to some of the schools. They worked with the St. Louis Symphony. They worked with the Chicago Symphony, too. They would actually do work for them. And they had certain instruments that they couldn't really prove who made them. This has a very bad fake Cheruti tag in it that it's not really a Cheruti cello. And they didn't want to go through all the paperwork. They thought, this is not going to be one of the major cellos in the world. It's not going to be a straight of, you know, whatever, Guarneri or whatever. But, so they, they would sell it to students at a reasonable rate that, you know, students that starve or whatever. And I was definitely one of those. Um, <laughs> take me to a meal, please. So um, I was able to get that. It was a great deal. Uh, you know, I love it. And I took it to his house, and he wanted to, to learn how to play cello. And it, my friend was saying, you know, he, he likes all that, blah, 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 you know, crazy stuff, man. Play, you know, pull it out and play some stuff. And I kind of did, and he just kind of was like, mm. and then I thought, that's 
not what the cello is. The cello is a, a legato soul. It's yeah. it's the voice. It's be, you know it's a beautiful thing. You can do that stuff, and and I love it when it's done. But it's that's not the the main feature of it. It's a human voice, and so I, I slowed it down, started playing stuff. He goes, yeah, yeah, Ron, that's that's what I like. Let me hear that. So again. he loved the lush kind of legato mm. part of that. Show. Very much so. We actually did some. We did some co-writing. Believe it or not, I don't think. I remember any of it. I know I don't, and I don't think he does either. I barely remember the night, that one <laughs> night, the first night. Um, but it was it was that kind of stuff. He loved ambient soul swells and, and just the background stuff. He loved texture, and that's what he really wanted to do. That's interesting because when you think of Eddie Van Halen and these ripping electric solos, it kind of makes sense that he would love that because the yin-yang effect, right? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so, because that's the stuff we did. And we kind of started messing with that. He said, but putting my name on us not going to do us any good, Ron. He said, nobody wants to hear Ed Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen doing anything besides, you know, his crazy guitar stuff. They didn't, nobody wanted to see him play, you know, keyboards. And he was actually a, a, a good mm-hmm. keyboard player. Any instrument he picked up, remember, that was, <laughs> that's what got us into trouble to begin with. Uh, we... we he had a, something he wanted to play for me, a song. We, we bonded that first night. We had talked before, but that was the first time we really kind of became friends. And he said, I want to play you this song. About a, about a, one of his friends had committed suicide, and, it, and he wanted to play this for me. It was like really deep on his heart, and he wanted to kind of connect. So, um, yeah, let's go look for it. It's in the house. So we leave the studio where he do, they do all their records and stuff, go in the house and each room in the house that he would take me to looking for this cassette tape, that's back in the old days when they still had cassette tapes. He was looking for it. Each room in the house had either a keyboard or a guitar leaning up against the wall with a bottle of generic vodka. Really? Like, he, lo, he, like lowbrow vodka? Oh, he doesn't, what is, what do you want? You know, you don't have to pay for that much money when you don't have to pay that much money to get buzzed, you know, go cheap. And he would, every instrument, every room we walked into, he'd pick up the instrument and go, or keyboard thing kind of, and put it down and then grab the bottle and just, and hand it to me. Okay. You know, so after about the third or fourth bedroom, I'm, I'm feeling pretty happy. <laughs> good, yeah. You know, I was kind of, yeah, this is good. So we go downstairs. Um, oh, this is so embarrassing. Valerie was kind of wearing a, a, Moo moo. Well, it was a very no. It was more of a sheer. <laughs> it wasn't really like you know, kind of low cut. And and I am a gentleman. I'm half Cuban, unfortunately, but I am a gentleman. And I'm trying to look everywhere else, but there. But I, I it was just like a magnet. You, no, 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 no. And I was just like I, I knew I was turning red. And she said, "Excuse me a second. And she leaves the room, and Ed and I just keep talking. And she comes back in with this big woolly. <laughs> Sweatshirt busted. Covered, is what you know. that means. And as soon as she did that, I went, <sighs> and they both just started laughing. She thought it was hilarious. She said, You've had some drinks because you're being a gentleman. She was, you know, in fact, can I make you something to eat? You know what you should have said? You should you have know. said, Had you had higher end vodka, I would have been a lot more classy. <laughs> well, it, but that, that showed how they were as, yeah. as people. They were both very lovely people. But that, that was. That's a pretty amazing story. That was that was my first night. I, it's like I didn't want to go back. It's like, no. uh, Ron, you have a trio mm-hmm. called Amity Three, where yes. you play primarily cello. Yes. And when I was uh, listening and looking through some of the videos, sometimes you play the cello 
like an upright bass. You do right. a lot of pizzicato playing on it. Um, I've got a short clip of Amity 3 here, and I'm not sure which one it is, but after we listen to this, I want you to describe kind of uh, your band for us because I think it really shows off you as a cello player. Uh, around Nashville, I think people know you first, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we know you as a bass player, especially because you're a bass player who tends to be as good on electric as upright, which is not always the case. It it does depend. Nashville is a town that does kind of pigeonhole you. There are some people that don't even know I play bass. And there are some people that have no idea I play cello. Hmm. It's just been where I've been put in, in you know. In some, people's minds. Right. Yeah. Well, this is uh, your band Amity 3 with you playing the cello. Do you remember that uh, that that take? What can you tell us about that? I've heard that one before. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, this group is a it's kind of an unusual uh, grouping of instruments. We have a classical guitar, cello, and drum set, which is um, now our guitarist is now saying well, that's the most common band in in Nashville, but obviously it's, it really is not. That's a very unusual combination. Yeah. Um, what, what I like about that band is guitar player is, uh, he has his master's in classical guitar, but he started off at Berkeley and did a lot of jazz and came steep from rock and roll early on. So he's got a, a very broad picture of music. He, he's able to put a lot of things together and stylistically stay true to them. The drummer, um, I've played uh, blues gigs with him before. I've done... Uh, Jazz gigs with him before. He, he's 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 very studied with with how he plays drums. He's very disciplined. In fact, he has his, uh, his doctorate in composition. He's also a composer. This is a smart band. It's a well, you would think, and then I'm in it, <laughs> but that might change things. Um, and then here I'm bringing the, the cello end of it up. That that I'm doing melodic, and then I have to go to the bass part. And that's what's kind of interesting. It's a very unusual combination because the guitarist and I, when I go to the melody, he's got to cover the, the the bass line as much as he can. So we we have to we have to craft the music so it it can flow from each person to each person. And everybody everybody in this band has to to they've got a job they have to perform. If one person doesn't make it. It falls, it falls apart. apart. It falls apart. That's yeah. that's a pretty kind of fun thing to be in, though, because it's oh. you don't feel like even if you're not doing a solo, you're not a backup player because if one person's off, the whole thing crashes. It's dependent on all three of us. Yeah. It's a full trio. All right. So, uh, Ron, you've got your cello with you, uh, which is great. Um, we're going to hear another song by George and Ira Gershwin. I think Howard Dietz was in on this uh, song as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it uh, was first sung in the musical OK, uh, and not OK, but OK as in Catherine, <laughs> by Gertrude Lawrence. Um, but who really made this song famous? I don't really know that, because I don't know Gertrude Lawrence, but I know there were a lot of people that sung this song. Who are some of them that were the most famous, you think? Sarah Vaughan did it. Sarah Vaughan? 
The platters. The platters did this. Yes, yeah. yeah. Platters did. That's probably one of the more yeah, uh, yeah. more famous. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got Enrique De Boni on piano and Ron De La Vega on cello playing "Someone to Watch Over Me." Thank you. 
that is a uh, definition of classic. You hear that melody. and um, Who were some of the famous people that cut that thing? Nancy Wilson. Yeah. Did you say Sarah Vaughn earlier? Uh, probably. Yeah. She sang everything. But Nancy Wilson, you think, had the uh, quintessential cut on it? Yeah, well, you guys sounded great. That was oh, beautiful. I got to say something. When you say sure. when you say Sarah Vaughn, that reminds me of my my teacher I had also at the MI, Ray Brown, but also Bob Magnuson. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my word! And we we became friends. And even though I was a student at this place, we would have these these different uh, people coming in for clinics or whatever. He's like, "Is that interest you?" I'm like, "Not really." Well, bring your cello in that day, and what we would do is we'd sneak off, and he, and I would play, we would play duets of Bach or whoever, him on bass, me on cello, and we would just spend like hours doing that while the seminars were going on. Oh, so Sarah Vaughn, amazing. Just, well, and and also Bob was one of the longest lasting bass players with with um, a Buddy Rich. You know, there which was, was a, a hard famous gig. club in Washington, D.C., actually right across the river in Old Town, Alexandria, called Kate Cellar Pub. And it was a very famous uh, jazz room. And uh, the only time I saw Sarah Vaughn was in the basement there of uh, Kate Cellar Pub. And what an amazing vocalist he was. I want to take a turn for just a moment. I want to talk about politics and music for a moment. I mean, we are in a contentious election year here in the United States and arguably a culture war. Um, And it got me thinking, you know, music has played a role in this current culture war, I think, for good and not. And it got me thinking about the 60s and early 70s and how the times affected music and how music affected the times. My question for both of you uh, to jump in on Thinking about the politics of Cuba, which are complicated and long, and South America, which are uh, equally complicated depending on what country we're talking about, how do you think politics and the particular culture of these countries have affected music there and in America? And also for you guys, did the political nature of this musical influence affect your life as a musician? Uh, in Uruguay, we had uh, some heavy moments in our history. For sure. One of the heaviest ones in, in the modern history, I was already out of there. Were you, you were playing in other countries? I, I was out. I was in Europe at that time, in the United States later. But uh, in the 60s, when I was there and I was working... So in 1965, the whole thing started to go down. That's why many musicians that we were living with music, we wanted to get out of there. I'm familiar with Chilean politics, especially in the 70s and the military juntas and fascism. Is that what we're talking about with uh, with Uruguay at the time? No, Chile is in the West, so didn't have much influence there, I believe. But... uh, Problems started there, and uh, there was, uh, actually, I was working in a bank also at that time, and there was an intervention, intervention of the Central Bank of Uruguay in the bank that I was working, and uh, a lot of people were fired, 
And I have to be very proud to be the first one that I fought they fired because <laughs> I was making too much money. <laughs> as so a musician? As, yeah. Well, no, as, as a bank. As a, oh, at the bank. Okay. As a bank officer. And they told me, how much are you making? 6,000 pesos. Okay. In two weeks, you're out. Goodbye. And then I say, wow. no problem. I'm, I'm a musician already. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I was doing good in music, so I didn't care. Ron, with Cuba, of course, you know, we go back at least to Bay of Pigs. We talk about certainly the Cuban Missile Crisis. We talk about isolating Cuba uh, post-Kennedy years. Uh, and you can't isolate a country without isolating a culture. And, of course, in your case, you had it built in because you had a Cuban dad. How do you think the politics of Cuba, did it have an effect on you personally within your family? Did it have, affect how you approached playing music with, the cult, with that half of the culture in your life? Well, politically, yes. <clears throat> Again, I grew up in the United States, so I can't speak directly to the, the politics of Cuba. But... My father was there. He, he, he quite honestly, he was um, the the previous leader of Cuba was was um, Batista. He, he was this is this was his second time being uh, considered president or leader of the country. The first time, he actually, from what I understand, reading through history and some of the the notes from the family, was actually a pretty decent fellow, but. I think he became corrupt, obviously, when he came into his second time serving as the leader of the country. You know, it was kind of bought and paid for by the mob mm. who had all the, the, you know, basically Cuba was, at that time, was a playground for the United States. Right. And true Cubans who... I shouldn't say true Cubans. Cubans that followed the, the, the ideology of Jose Marti, which was like the big Cuban liberator. Kind of the, the nationalist side? Well, I'm not sure what it was considered. I don't know the terminology with that. I hate to sound completely ignorant, but just the, the whole thing was Jose Marti was very much fought for the independence of Cuba against Spain and also against the United States. He all He said very clearly... He, um, and I, this is maybe way beyond what we need to talk about, but he was, he loved the United States from the outside. Do not come in and try to take over us, which is kind of what the United States seemed to want to do. Mm -hmm. They wanted to turn Cuba, in, uh, Cuba into uh, Puerto Rico, a playground. They wanted right. to keep that. When my father and his family, they were on the outs, they didn't believe in Batista's uh, philosophies or life, and they were harassed all the time. So they could not wait for the Cuban Revolution. So they left before it ever came about. So yeah. anything that's happened since then, I can't speak that I know the truth to it because my family left prior to. The Cuban Revolution was 1959. Right, exactly. And they left before that because they could not. It was in the, it was, I think it was 46 when they left, but it was, it was in the 40s. They could not wait for the change to happen because Batista was, was harassing the family. My family was actually a well-to-do family, educated people. Education was huge to them. 
Uh, everybody except for one of my aunts. Your dad was a physician. My dad was a physician. His mom, a concert, concert violinist. violinist. His father was a physician. His brother was a psychoanalyst, so he had his, his medical degree and his PhD in psychology. His, his, my uncle, his brother, Modesto, was an engineer and worked actually on some of the Apollo stuff. Pretty amazing stuff that happened. My, my, uh, one of my aunts, uh, Tigloria, was a, a professor of language at the University of Miami, had her doctorate in, uh, in language, in, in uh, foreign languages, and taught that there. The only one that didn't have anything more than a, a master's, the one that had the master's was Maria, Maria, and she spent her life working with special needs children. Did they all leave Cuba or? At the, around the same time. Which yeah. was what year, you think? 46. Oh, pretty early. 40, you know, it was in the, the mid to late 40s, they left. So did Cuban-American politics play out in the home in Illinois? Yes, very much so. My, my father was very outspoken. He was, I hate to bring all this up to the whole world. I was watching, but you asked. My father was not anti-Castro, which was a pretty heavy burden. It was kind of the opposite of what we know of American transplants from Cuba, right? Right. And as my father put it, you know, decide for yourself. He never told me how to think. He always said, you know, the, the ability to speak two languages and listen to broadcasts of news around the world, and in that you'll be able to assimilate some faction of truth that you can kind of put together. He didn't live under Castro, but he saw that Castro was holding up what Jose Marti believed in. And Castro was backed up against the wall when the United States wanted to basically make him a Puerto Rico, and he didn't want that. He wanted them to be free, and he couldn't get help from the United States. He got embargoes, so he went to the only place that would give him money, which was Russia, and it became more of a communist situation. That was the precursor to what we saw during Mm -hmm. the Missile Crisis. So did, I guess one of my questions is, did the politics of Cuba and America and within your own family, did that inform your music at all? Was there ever either a nationalistic feel with you, with Cuba's culture and music, or was it, I hate to say it this way. Was it more pure love of of that music? As a younger person, it was more the the pure love of the music. As I mature, I, I learn more about learn more about it and start situation. to understanding things and try to get honesty in you know all this stuff about fake news and everything. Mm-hmm. You, you you've got to listen to so many things to get. The reality. Did it in in the end? It, it did. Did inf- that politics inform your music, or or was that really separate? No, it, it became that. It de- definitely later became on. later on. Oh. Became that. And you started to get into that music a little bit more deeply to investigate what it's all about. Exactly, and that's. What happened Thank to you. me with... So an understanding of the politics and culture came after the love of the music? Is that the point? It happened to me the same thing with the music of my country that at the beginning, because I was a jazz musician, I didn't kind of pay attention to, or I didn't have the chance, but the years 
the maturity you achieve in the years of experience playing and going back, you say, wait a second, let's see what is in that. And there is a treasure there. The same thing like there is a treasure in the Club Buena Vista and other Cuban music. Very much and, so. and you know, I'm Very not, so. uh, I don't understand or, or I'm not, I don't know the particular politics of Uruguay at the time. I am familiar with the politics of Chile, of course, on the west side, and the understanding of Augusto Pinochet yeah. uh, and Salvador Allende being assassinated, which we pretty sure that CIA was involved in his assassination. Um, and my dad was actually a um, an election observer during the plebiscite against Pinochet, and I was down there. So I understand the fascism of, of South America. I know the history of Argentina and uh, kind of the fascist Nazi yeah. escape. Was Uruguay a part of that, or was it separate? No, Argentina and Brazil. Brazil a lot. They have a lot of Germans in Brazil. Mm-hmm. But again, going back to the CIA, CIA was in Uruguay too. Okay. In the seventies. And we did you know that at the time as a musician? I well, I was in Europe at the time, mm-hmm. but when the movement of the Tupamaros, the revolutionary movement in Uruguay, CIA sent somebody there to teach torture methods to the police in Uruguay. It sounds like uh, South American uh, fascism during the 70s was uh, American-inspired, which was honestly part of my question about politics and music with, uh, with Cuba and South America. For you at the time, Enrique, back to you, uh, did the politics at the time, realizing that you were already traveling uh, uh, the the world, playing jazz clubs in different places, did the politics of Uruguay or South America in general inform your music at all, or was that something that you purposely separated? Well, I was, at that time, we didn't have the TV and the internet we didn't have the information that we have today. Yeah. It was just, I, my mother used to send me clips, newspaper clips, and we would learn sometimes watching TV. But let's say I was in Denmark, what I want to watch on TV or anything, couldn't understand a thing. So I was kind of separated of the world reality for a while. You know, in Chile at the time, there was a, uh, during the time of the the junta where Augusto Pinochet took over, there was a very well-known, I think people would probably call him the Woody Guthrie slash commercial John Denver of the time, maybe of Chile, Victor Hera was his name. And he ultimately was, like so many entertainers and political activists, uh, publicly... um, well, he, he had his hands cut off by the junta, in, I think, in the soccer stadium in Santiago as a cruel and graphic portrayal of power to say we have basically the voice of Chile and we can take power over him and we cut his hands off. And when I visited Chile, there were on literal donkey carts selling fruit and small five-by-eight photos of Victor Hera. It was still a little bit of an underground thing. 
this might put you on the spot. Was there a musician or was there a song in Uruguay that was a counterculture song or a... Several. I mean, I'm, I don't know any of those, but there were movements, musical movements of protest. And who, was pl- who were playing those songs? I mean, what type of genre are we talking about? It was like a folklore, yeah. mostly. Let's put it this way. There, there was a singer called Alfredo Cita Rosa. It was like the Johnny Cash of Uruguay, put okay. it that way. And he was actually forbidden to sing by the military junta of Uruguay. To sing publicly. He was exiled, went to Spain and went to Mexico too. Wow. Yep. And at that time, what, what year are we talking about at that time? 70s. 70s. At that point, you were traveling already. Right. Yeah. One last question on this topic. Uh Balancing music and entertainment and social action is a difficult one, especially now. Now it's impossible. <laughs> it's almost impossible because on one yeah. hand, as a musician, of course, you realize that your audience is made up of all religions and, and political persuasions and cultural persuasions, and you don't want to alienate your fan base. Music business is hard enough. But at the same time, I, I, this is my personal opinion, I think the idea that musicians, because they are entertainers, should quote-unquote just entertain and not speak to social, political topics at hand is is um, wrong. And I think we have a deep history to prove that point in this country, that music and singers and songs uh, in parallel with politics moves the conversation along. So I guess, what role do you guys think having been musicians for all your lives, what role does music play in moving the conversation? Or should we shut up and just play our music? In the United States, we have a rich history of folk music speaking about the injustices, the things that are going on. I'm sorry, if you take that away from the artist to be able to speak and sing or say their mind, speak their mind, it's not fair. Your point is just because we are entertainers, that does not mean we traded in our ability to make a statement. Hell no. Excuse me for being so <laughs> I think broad. that's a good answer. Hell but no. No, I'm sorry. You don't have to agree with the artist that you're listening to. You might like the artist but not care for their message. That's fine too. But the artist has, I think, every right and more so has an obligation to speak. I was going to ask about the obligation. I'm sure there's an obligation as a person to speak your mind and say what you're thinking. And if people don't agree with it, great. They can skip your CD, skip your record in the old days. Nowadays, you have remote controls. That's pretty amazing. You can actually change the channel. Right. You don't want to hear it, you don't have to hear it. You don't have to hear it. And, I, you know, people are so offended by people speaking their mind. I have a particular point of view. You can obviously tell where I lean. But if you shut down the other side because you don't agree with it, I don't care where your point of view is. If you shut down the other side, you're as bad as the other person, too. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, you have to listen. If you, can, if you put it out there, you have to be able to listen to it also. Good point. I have no problem. I've got people all over my Facebook that I, you know, I see them posting stuff. I completely I cringe at that things that they say, but they have the right to say it. 
I can't tell them to not say it, don't believe that, whatever. I don't have that right. They have every right to say that. I listen to the things that I completely disagree with because in there somewhere, I'm going to be able to listen and learn something that hopefully can bring us closer together so we can maybe start to understand and get rid of this complete polar opposites that we're at right now. It's ridiculous. So is your point that even though we know music is the thing that brings us together, I think that's been proven time and time again, decade and decade again, if it's a thing that brings us together, uh, it doesn't mean that it needs to be this neutral, vanilla, no. pointless entertainment. Because one of the things that we do here from time to time, especially lately, is – just sing your damn songs. Just yeah. play your damn songs. Yeah. We don't want to be preached to. I understand that. Obviously, I have a particular bent towards it as well. But even if I had the opposite political bent than I have, I would still be supportive of musicians uh, being the catalyst. Because we talk all the time. We're fine by saying music is the soundtrack of life. We throw that out a lot. If it is the soundtrack of life, it's not just the soundtrack of a party. It's not just the soundtrack of a wedding. It is the soundtrack of turmoil as well, and we have to be able to speak it. And I worry that younger musicians, because we, because <laughs> I'd say we, I'm not. I think younger musicians are driven by digital numbers, likes, shares, uh, whatever other category of that there is. The tendency, I think, for younger musicians is to not ruffle feathers with their music. And I worry that we lose something as artists when we don't speak through music for the times. And, and I'm sorry, I don't want to step on you. you know, I'm sorry. To, but <clears throat> there's, there's two different things we're talking about with that. You're talking about a young artist stating their peace of mind, stating what they're thinking, and then basically cutting their, uh, cutting their chances on getting anything publicly done. They're not established enough to, to say exactly what they feel. It is a dangerous roll of the dice. It's a Practice. dangerous roll of the dice, especially for an up-and-coming artist that has the ability that can go on beyond. But if they say something that some people don't agree with, they're going to get shut down yeah. before they ever have a beginning. Do you think that's different from the 60s when no. we know the 60s and the 70s? Well, I guess part of it is what one of my thoughts is the 60s and the 70s, the, what we considered commercial music— in some respects, was protest music. I wonder if you could get away with that easier in the 60s and 70s than you could now. I don't think you can do it now. No. No, I think you're right. I don't think we can. Today is different? Today is very different. How Every, so? Everything is different today. It is. Do you think there's different pressure on musicians today? Pressure in, in any profession. In terms of not alienating people? Yep. We are all divided. Well, and if you lean a certain way... You're put into a category that you may not, you know, it's just, it takes over. You're instantly, it's like I was saying earlier, not the same thing, but, you know, Nashville is a pigeonhole town. People don't know that I play cello. People don't know I play, you know, people don't know, you know, you, you get play. segregated easily. You don't play tangos or you do play tangos, you know. But the thing is, you get separated and everything is like everything's decided for you at that point by where you say you know and people hear that you know oh he was liberal with this so mm, that's all he can do oh he was right wing people you know people can be a mixture we have the opportunity as artists though especially music 
uh, to be able to bridge that divide, I think. And maybe, like you said, the word obligation is pretty important. Oh. So, folks, if you're listening, no matter if you are conservative or liberal or uh, whatever your cultural bent is, if you can't listen to Ron De La Vega play the upright bass and the cello and Enrique De Bone play the keys and feel peaceful in a safe place, then we got other problems. So I think although one of the expectations of music is that we move culture along, the other thing about music is that we... um, it's a salve. We have a place of healing, too. And so hopefully listening to these uh, master musicians help you heal. And so back to the music now. Uh, as master musicians, like yourselves, you can meld different styles and make it sound effortless. That, to me, is one of the marks of a master musician, is being able to do the dance that everybody else would go, oh, that sounds easy, and inside your head you're going, you have no idea, right? You guys are able to do that. Enrique, we had a discussion you know, some months ago about the first few pieces you learned as a young player, and you talked about learning them straight off the sheet music, right? And then you learned to modify those pieces as you became a better player, there were two songs I remember you talking about. One was Moon Glow, and the other was Laura. What I'd love for you to do for the moment is, can you show us both songs? First, kind of how you learned it in that, I'm scared to death, I want people to accept yep. me off the sheet music, and now I'm going to let it roll a little bit. Okay. Going to do Moon Glow first? Sure. This is the way I learned it. That's it. So you had it down, you read it perfectly. And that's more or less the way I played it. And they say, yeah, you have good conditions to do it. You got the basics. But you were horrible. (laughs) But you didn't move us. So move us. Sounds good. Beautiful. And you know the difference between those A and B uh, examples that I hear is the difference between a 16-year-old trying to gain entry to the hot club and at least be accepted, just the minimum, 
And then the B section I heard was... 60 years later. <laughs> well, the guy that played in these blue-collar jazz clubs across the world well, for, you know, dealing with hours and hours yeah. of playing the reality some, being musician. Listen, some of them, they were just clubs, but I also play in other clubs that didn't have anything to do with jazz. So I had to play everything. Yeah. Rock and roll, tropical music, uh, commercial, disco. Life experience informs kind of the ability to take a song from its basic perfectness to something that's musical, right? You don't learn to play that way first time out. Ron, can can you let our listeners in on, at least from a bass perspective, uh, and I know we have our mic kind of semi-set up for your vocal, but that's okay. Feel free to pick up the bass. Um, at least from a bass perspective, what makes music Cuban? Is it groove? Is it melody? Is it note choice? If you were to take a bass line or a groove and make it more Cuban than not, what would the change sound like? Explanation-wise, in uh, most of the music that is Cuban, the bass and the count, one, two, three, four, four is the one for the bass. Four is the one. That's Four is the one. We're talking about the accent that's on there. The accent is where the chord changes. It's on the last beat of the measure before the next... So it's always on the, you yeah, know, and that's pick exactly. Up your bass. It. Show show us a line, maybe play us a bass line where it's not the accent isn't there on that four, and then show us how you would transform it. So it's it's like one two three four one two three four. Four. So it's always on the four. So everything. One, two, four. It's always on the four is what leads you in to the, the, the next. And obviously that's true even if always you're playing, well. let's say, in a trio with a, uh, a... Oh, yeah, I hear that. Let's say you're playing with a trio with a singer and a piano and a bass player. You don't have a percussion player. It doesn't you matter. become that. And it still has to be it, that accent. Yeah, it and, still has to be that accent. And, and you have to have... A, in that case, the help of the pianist that going. Because that goes with the clave. So do you think it's fair to say that Cuban music, maybe South American music too, is based first in rhythm? Is that a fair thing or oh, no? Very much so. Okay. Very much so. Yeah, it's 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 because what it, sets it apart. It, it it well, I can't say it sets it apart because a lot of of countries, you know, there are several. Well, a lot of American music is is influenced by African, the African yeah. influence is still there. In Uruguay, we have what is called candombe. It's a rhythm comes from Africa, and it was modified in a way that uh, it's three different types of drums that they are playing different things. One is doing the repique, another is the piano, 
And all of them, they have their function. One is free doing like the improvisation, but the other ones, they do what is called the pattern that it has to be repeated all the time. It's called right. what? Candombe. Like, uh, it's very difficult to show it in the piano, but... Again, it's where the accent hits. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's very reminiscent of the clave I was talking about. Right. The clave is in there. It's built into that. And you know why they go in the streets, like 50, 60, 70 people playing in what is called the cuerda, and they go in carnival. They were, it's unbelievable. You have to leave it and experience to talk about it. It is just percussion, no other instruments. That's got to be a moving sound with that many people. It's unbelievable. Before we start wrapping up, you had mentioned earlier on, too, about a very influential piano player in your life, uh, especially that got you some of those first jobs overseas. Who was that, and why was he influential? Um, in the Hawk Club, I told you about Horace Silver, one of the piano players that influenced me. <clears throat> but the other one was Hampton Hawes. He had Hampton a, Hawes. Right. H-A-W-E-S, I think. That's correct. Right. And he had a trio. We had a couple of albums that we just killed the albums of listening so much. And uh, he was uh, from Compton, California, playing in the West Coast most of the time. And uh, You remember the first song that struck you? Billy Boy. Play a little bit. He also played uh, Gershwin songs, uh, Somebody Loves Me. That wasn't the record, and we devoured that record. Was it because that record was at the Hot Club, which was already such a cultural hotspot for you, or what was it about that record that turned you on? Uh, his piano player, his swing, his swing part feeling... Him. And uh, in Spain, when I was in 1968, I was, was a group that I left Montevideo in 1967, but I wasn't that happy with the group, and I wanted to take another direction. And uh, luckily, they called me from a jazz club called Whiskey Jazz, and the piano player from Switzerland had to take a couple of weeks off, and they called another piano player from Spain to solve for him, but he couldn't do it. That piano player was Juan Carlos Calderón. He was a composer of very popular songs, but also a great jazz pianist. But he couldn't do it, and I have met him before. Like I said, I had this kid from Uruguay that plays nice jazz. Okay, send it. So I went there, I played this couple of weeks with an unbelievable group of a saxophone player named Pedro Iturralde in, in one of the best rhythm sections I ever played with. Eric Peter in bass, 
from Switzerland and Pierre Wiboris, drummer from Germany. But wow. they were they were in, in Spain at that time. Mm. And when they called me, I felt like a football player that is bench all the time and they hadn't just for, you know, okay, it's your turn to come in. Who, me? <laughs> so I went and I played. I did the best I could and probably they liked me or not, but play those two weeks. And the next piano player was Hampton Hose in, in the following week after I left. So I, and I had the week off, so I say I'm going to go and meet the guy that was one of my best influences. I sat next to the piano. I went early, sat next to the piano, and started looking at all what he was doing. And of course, I introduced myself. We became friends. He went to listen to me playing. And he was so humble that uh, after I asked me, can you tell me a couple of things what you do here and there? So he explained, and he said, can you explain to me what you do in this Brazilian song? Like... That I was doing, and he liked that. So I explained that to him, we became friends, and he told me, when I told him that I was... uh, thinking of leaving this group, and I didn't know, I want to get out of here, I told him. And you were, where, where were you then? In Spain, in Madrid. And he said, I'm going to give you a hand. And later on, a month later, I received a letter from this empresario singer from Italy that uh, say your friend Hanton House recommended you, and I want to form a group to play in the Festival of Antibes. So I sent my two friends from Uruguay, bass and drums, and a saxophone player from Argentina that was a very good friend of mine. And we got a trumpet player from Italy. We formed the quintet, and that was the change. Yeah. Ron, so Enrique had Hampton Hawes. You've played with Benny Goodman. You played with Nancy Griffith, a storied uh, member of the uh, Blue Moon Orchestra, uh, and, and many others. Who do you point to as uh, people that you looked up to that actually helped you? Well, one of the first people I mentioned was Ray Brown. Your bass teacher in L.A.? Yeah, and and, and but not just loose term. <laughs> I mean, that's that's like you know he mentored a lot of us to say the least. Everybody when we knew Ray Brown was coming, it's like, it like everybody's like, ah! you know, that's the top. But I'll I'll never forget you know what Enrique was saying. One of the things I remember we we had times that we had our studio time where we got to play our stuff, got to mix our stuff, and Ray Brown walked in after we had we were doing the stuff that I was involved with, and he he went he's playing bass on this. Kind of looking around the room, looking around the room, and I'm thinking, "Oh shit, I don't, I don't want to say anything because it's like I don't want to." <laughs> this get, can I go one of two I, ways. Oh, this can go definitely <laughs> one of one way. I was thinking, it was like, "Oh, I'm going to be admonished right here." I'm, you know, and I kind of sat back, and a couple guys pushed up. You know, uh, Carl Shorter was this wonderful piano player, worked with Siravon and a bunch of people. He called me Jive Vega because I would try to the easy way out sometimes. He goes, "Come on, Jive, come on, you did that." 
And he pushes me up. It's like, yeah, I, I, yeah, he goes. That's an important moment, though. Well, I, I, I really didn't. You know, it was like being pushed to the front of a train. You're strapped onto a train going 90 <laughs> miles. It's like, holy cow, I don't want to be here. You yeah, know? thanks for killing me, buddy. Oh, yeah, just push me off that cliff. Yeah, there we go. But he, he kind of, you know, did that. And Ray's like, let me tell you something, son. If you played it, you own it. You say, that is me. And I thought, well, I'm going to say that. And you're going to go. That sucked. I knew that was coming next, you know. That was the punchline. Oh, yeah. I was thinking, waiting for that. I said, yeah, that was me. He said, that's some nice playing. Wow. Very nice. And then left the room. I'm sitting there going, I don't know. Well, there's I, I lily like pad melting, moments that you, you know, go, okay, I can, yeah. I can ride on this for a little while. Well, that was kind of a, a nice little pat on the back, to say the least, you know. But, but that was one of the times that I had uplifting. Your question, again, back to your question, I got sidetracked because that was what no, came that was to mind right to away. That was the answer to uh, it. I, I mean, guys, uh, all three of us, uh, you as a bass player and you as a piano player and me as a songwriter, we've been lucky enough to have started our passion early and have adults in our lives that were um, big influences and actually helped us. So one of the obligations to having that luck is to pass it along. You know, these are vastly different times for up-and-coming musicians. I mean, the digital world alone and the changes that that has brought in making money, making your name, uh, having gigs, playing live, monetizing your art, it's a different ballgame now than it was uh, when, when I was coming up and you guys were coming up. So with that in mind, one of the things I want my listeners to know, I mean, we are sitting with two virtuosic musicians, not only from a technical standpoint, but from a having lived it standpoint. And uh, that living history is important. So I want to try to put you guys on the spot to give your best advice to that young player out there who is seriously devoted to making music with his or her life. What are some of your best pieces of advice, either creative or business-wise, that you can give knowing what young people are up against now? Enrique, you want to take that first? Yeah, uh, first of all, for any musician, I would advise, forget about these little toys. You're talking about the technology? Yeah, forget about those. Those are when you grow up. Go to a piano. It's old, it's out of tune, doesn't matter. Go to a nice piano or a bad piano and start with that instrument. That instrument is the basic of all music. You have melody, you have harmony, and you have percussion too because you go... And uh, So don't let technology uh, fool you into not... Starting with the basics, is that kind of part of what I'm right, you said? Right, Start from zero and go slowly. Uh, of course, you're going to get bored like I did with it. And I got bored and I told my mother after six years of piano, sell that instrument, I don't want it anymore. But my mother said, no, you will be back, and I did. So find the passion first. right. If your passion is there, mine wasn't at six. So what's your advice to that musician? I'm thinking about a teenager or maybe a a late teenager, young adult, who honestly is one of us, quote-unquote one of us, but is really struggling to keep going. What's that lily pad you can throw out to go, keep going, kid? Find a model, find a role model in your instrument. 
That's what I did with Horace Silver, Hampton House. Devour the records. That's a great word. Devour the records. Try to find a style that you are comfortable with. It's jazz, it's rock and roll, whatever. But copy solos. Not that you need to copy to copy later and, and do the same thing. But copy... But understand in, what they're doing. To, to see where it leads you to. Ron, what would you uh, say to... Again, we're talking about... I'm thinking about the kid who is, again, one of us, quote-unquote, who is bitten by the bug lifelong, but with today's obstacles, whether it's technology or the fact that now, especially in COVID times, playing live, monetizing music, that whole argument that says, you know, why would you do this? What's, what's your piece of advice for that kid? First of all, let me go back to a beginner. When people ask me all the time, uh, you know, I want to start my kid learning music. What would you recommend? And the first thing I recommend is exactly what you were saying, Enrique, is the piano. The piano teaches you melody, harmony, you have the dexterity, and you have the rhythm. So one of the things I'm hearing from both of you, obviously, is get to know an instrument, your instrument, from a technical standpoint. Learn it, devour it, as you said, Enrique. Let me ask you this, though, Ron. From an emotional, creative headspace, there are a lot of reasons not to be an artist. There are more reasons not to be an artist than to be an artist, unfortunately. When young people that are listening to this run into that, as they inevitably will, the many reasons not to do it, what's your anecdote to that? You don't give up. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling something, you need to share that with others. You know, I, if it's that strong in you, it'll be that strong in someone. Else. Someone will understand, will receive it, and understand it, and get it. You may not become a huge international success. Uh, you mentioned Nancy Griffith; she had a kind of a small, you know, medium-sized cult following. She had a built-in audience always, but she reached those people. It was. A built-in, any album she put out was going to be devoured, as you, as you, I love that term, by the way, <laughs> was going to be listened to and understood and people would love it. So you're not headlining, you know, you're, you're not... So don't measure yourself by these do not, false... Oh, that's the biggest problem I think people have is, you know, when you compare, you're going to always lose. Be you. Be you. Right. Also, uh, we Going back to the piano, after you do your piano and you understand what it's about, you can become a trumpet player, but you're going to have an unbelievable advantage. Because you started there. Right. Because you understand the harmony, right. the rhythms, everything going on. You understand all, that's exactly it. That's why I say any beginner in music needs to begin with piano right. first. Interesting. Well, this has been an incredible conversation, which is what Conversations on Cub Creek is supposed to be about. Uh, thank you both for joining me. Great music tonight, great perspectives. Ron, where can people find you? I know you have a new Facebook music page. Is it Ron De La Vega Music? 
Yes. So you can find Ron De La Vega on Facebook at Ron De La Vega Music. I know, Enrique, you're not all over the socials. I have found uh, a few YouTube um, videos of you, but I want to let people know that there is a Facebook page for the Conversations on Cub Creek, same name, and I'm going to be posting uh, behind-the-scenes pictures and videos not only of tonight but of both these guys' uh, storied careers. So if you want to learn more about Enrique Deboni, make sure you go over to Conversations on Cub Creek Facebook page as well as uh, Ron De La Vega. And you can go to Ron's Facebook page, Ron De La Vega Music. Can I, can I also say, please, please look up Enrique Deboni. The man is incredible. Well, to have you both in the same room playing music together, I have to say there's a reason why this went from one uh, episode to an episode that may be three parts. <laughs> I'm so delighted to play with him, man. Uh, well, it's been an absolute joy for me, guys. And we, we can't end before hearing another song. This last song, I think, is about Bossa Nova that dates back maybe 1965. We're talking about Gentle Rain. Can you tell us a little bit about Gentle Rain? You know, it's... Uh, uh, do I have 1965 right? Is that sound probably, about right? I know it was written by Luis Bonfa and sang and played by a lot of people. Where did you first learn it? Who knows? So it's one of those songs that you just grow up knowing. It's like... Uh, if you're playing jazz and... Like the Safinado, Girl of Ipanema, Corcovado. It's a standard. So you yes. grew up knowing it too? Just I don't even sure know who why. wrote it. Yeah, I don't know why. It was always there. Here's Enrique Deboni on piano and Ron De La Vega on bass playing Gentle Rain.
I hope you've enjoyed this time with Ron and Enrique as much as I have. I'll tell you a little secret. I could not let our time together end without getting a chance to sing with them. So hang on a minute. I've got a surprise for you. If you have any topics you'd like us to build a conversation around, drop by the Conversations on Cub Creek Facebook site. And while you're there looking through show notes and behind-the-scenes pictures, drop me a line with your thoughts. If you've enjoyed your time with us on the creek, Please leave a five-star rating and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thank you. Just like a hammer